Dr. Josh Lebowski is fascinated by connections between geography, technological systems and their discards. He researches waste from the manufacturing of electronics to its end of life. He explores where e-waste accumulates and who it affects. He has a keen interest in how maintenance and repair might offer lessons for figuring out how to live well together in permanently polluted and always breaking worlds. I started our chat by asking Josh about the pernicious myth of digital as ethereal. There's this long-standing uh, tendency to think about and talk about and market um, the digital, broadly conceived here, um, to you know occur or happen in a pl- in a placeless place. You know, a um, we use at least in English, you know, words like virtual often go with um, these kinds of technologies and how we talk about them, how we think about them. Um, and that isn't an accident. Um, it, it has been part of the conversation around, um, the industries that, um, you know, design, make, build, um, electronic devices really since their inception, um, and, uh, quite literally designed into the landscapes of the place that you know, often now gets called Silicon Valley, um, deliberately designed in not as a as a kind of a, a whoopsie or a, a secondary uh, consideration, but a, a primary consideration uh, by the designers of of um, those uh, manufacturing landscapes to create something that would quite literally look like a clean industry and be different than what industry had meant um, sort of up to that point. And uh, a lot of that design um, was about deliberately placing um, industrial infrastructure out of sight, you know, literally putting it underground, things like uh, chemical storage tanks, um, needed to, you know, store the the necessary chemicals for uh, the manufacturing processes, um, and so it was a it was a deliberate urban design uh, process, and I think um, it has, uh, you know, sort of been with us since uh, at least the you know the sort of nineteen fifties and and the uh, urban design that emerged around. Um, uh, folks at Stanford's Stanford University's, um, you know, rolling out of the industrial infrastructure that became what today we know as as Silicon Valley. Um, but so, why does it all matter? Well, I think you know one of the ways it matters is that it it is very useful um, for. Um, you know, the marketing and, and uh, the industrial interests uh, out of which digital technologies emerge, that um, they can trade on these images of being, you know, light, green. Um, I think of all of the metaphors that go with so much of the technolo- the digital technologies we use, like the cloud, for example. I mean, it's hard to think of something more ethereal and fleeting as a cloud. And yet, you know, uh, as I'm, as I'm sure you've, you've spoken about on, on other episodes of the podcast, uh, data centers and, and whatnot, uh, that we need for using digital technologies require huge amounts of energy, of course, just to run, of course, they have to be built in the first place. They require huge amounts of water for cooling energy for cooling. Um, and so on and so forth. So this this myth of the digital as ethereal, I think, is, is very useful in that it uh, can be a way to divert attention from, um, in many ways, the, the very, you know, sort of classic uh, problems that come along with industrial production. That is, you know, the use of energy and materials, and of course the the wastes and pollution that uh, pretty much always result. To some degree, you could possibly argue that 
digital is the opposite of ethereal, that there's there's probably no industry that is more material intense uh, and polluting gram for gram, pound for pound. If you look at the the the, the actual type of the the variety and type of materials and their their negative polluting cons potential consequences if they're not properly cared for and looked after. Yeah, I mean, these kinds of sort of comparisons of different industrial sectors can, you know, it, it can be really tricky to have commensurable measures. But um, there is, you know, there is good work um, in the, you know, the early 2000s, for sure, by uh, industrial engineers talking about, um, not just talking about, but demonstrating the um, the energy and material footprints that uh, are required for making digital devices. And um, I think there's a couple of points that are important to try and sort of disentangle here. And so one of them is that, um, you know, digital devices um, do rely on some um, materials that are, let's say, different than other industrial products. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the so-called uh, 3TG, uh, tin, tungsten, uh, gold, um, these sorts of metals, rare earths and whatnot, um, that you don't necessarily find in other consumer products, though not exclusively. Gold is an, is an obvious one. Copper is another obvious one that you would find in, say, traditional automobile manufacturing. But something that does set digital technologies apart in terms of their uh, energy and material footprints for, uh, for manufacturing is that to get the purity of materials that you need to make things like semiconductors so that they will work properly requires uh, substantially more energy and material inputs in terms of um, purifying those materials uh, enough that they can then be used to manufacturing manufacture digital devices so one analogy that i've i've uh, recall from my reading in this area is that if you think about the purity of materials needed for manufacturing a, a silicon ingot which is like a giant cylinder of well not it's sort of a desk-sized cylinder of of uh, metal required for uh, making uh, the silicon that goes into semiconductor manufacturers. I don't know if you have this candy in Ireland, but Tic Tacs are a, a, a little candy that comes in a tiny little box. They're smaller. Each individual Tic Tac is you know smaller than your fingernail. And the analogy that I've seen in the literature in terms of the purity of silicon that you would need, you would need to line up those TikToks from the west coast of the United States to the east coast, and only one tic-tac in that line could be um, impure. Um, that's the level of purity that you would it is required for um, uh, making those those uh, semiconductors, and to get that kind of purity requires massive amounts of uh, energy and um, intermediate inputs. Um, so uh, there there are really, uh, if you will, heavy consequences to manufacturing these devices. Uh, interesting, and uh, I don't know whether it's uh, connected, but I, I I saw this study about that we are. Digging out of the earth um, in 2020, 100, 100 billion tons, and that roughly 90 billion tons of it uh, is is waste. But then, when I did calculations on roughly the waste that I was seeing in the figures for electronics, it was more like 99.9% to get the 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 usable piece. It was 99.9% waste. You know, would that be roughly, you know, in the, you know, that to build a car or, or, or to build something else, it's 90% of the materials go to waste and 10% of them go are, are usable. But to build the, the, the chip or the other things, it's a kind of 99.9% .9 of the materials go to waste and it's just that 0.1% that's usable. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very, it, it does depend on where sort of in the, in the life of 
you know, a thing being built, you look at it. But so in the in the mining sector, it, it is very normal for the mining sector. I mean, you know, industry uh, journals, industry representatives to talk about, um, you know, anywhere between 98 and 99 percent of a given mines materials is considered waste and you know they will use that term waste or overburden um so those numbers that you're that you're mentioning there are certainly within the realm of of uh, what would be considered very normal in the mining sector regardless of whether it is about um mining materials for electronics or or other um other products uh, there's a couple of things I think can be said there. One is is that for some materials, um, many many metals, for example, they're you know they're mined um, and go into many different types of products, not just digital devices. Copper is a classic example, but you know there there's certainly others. Aluminum um, is another classic example. And it can be very hard to kind of at the at the let's say at the mine site to disentangle you know how much of of the uh, ore coming out is going into this or that uh, manufacturing sector down the line, as it were. Um, so, but as I say, um, it, it's very normal in the in the mining world to talk about um, you know. 98 to 99% of the material that is being moved around to be considered waste. Um, so that, that very much accords with the numbers that you're talking about. Why is it so important, this conversation that we're having now, that we're talking about manufacturing? Um, you know, it's, it's probably not a subject that gets a lot of attention. I know, you know, e-waste is getting more... Uh, getting a fair bit of attention, but but often, you know, we don't hear that much about the manufacturing angle. Why is it so important? We really start thinking more about about this manufacturing angle. Yeah. So there's a few reasons. So one is in terms of just the sheer um, weight, uh, the sheer uh, level of of harm, toxicity, uh, etc. most of the waste arising and most of the um, effects are being felt by people and places and ecologies that are, I'll use the term, upstream of where, say, you and I as consumers of devices um, purchase and use our our, our digital technologies. So um, now one of the reasons that so much attention is on um, consumer waste or e-waste that, that you know, you and I as, as users of devices, when we get rid of them, uh, one of the reasons there's so much attention on that is because I think it, it seems very obvious to us that that's where the waste happens because you and I, have a tangible connection to it right we can see it we can feel it we can um if it's organic wastes from our households we can smell it you know we're putting it in this or that bin on a on a daily or weekly basis we're taking if there's curbside collection where we live we're taking it outside so we have this very visceral connection to that uh, portion of the waste stream, but in terms of the overall waste stream, what you and I see, feel, smell, etc., is very tiny. Um, you know, on the order of you know two to ten percent of overall waste arising. Ninety to ninety-eight percent of the waste arising from our electronics happened before you and I even purchased the devices that we're now using. But we don't typically have a, a, a direct connection uh, to that. It's harder for us to see um, unless, you know, we happen to live or work in, say, uh, you know, a, a mine uh, or near it, uh, or we live and work near a, a manufacturing facility. Um, 
we you know we have a less a much less direct connection to that upstream waste and yet as i say that's where most of the the waste and pollution uh, from electronics is is happening so uh it's important to sort of expand the frame as you will if you will or turn turn our view upstream and and come to grips with the magnitude of uh, pollution and waste arising before we even purchase our devices if we want to come up with um, uh, ways of mitigating or or eliminating uh, the uh, the waste from electronics perhaps this is part of what I might call the Larry Summers um, effect, or you know, the, I came across this quote by by him. Uh, he he was a senior economist in the World Bank and part of the U.S. government, uh, and this was back in 1991. And he said, you know, just between you and me, uh, this was an internal email in the uh, just between you and me. Shouldn't the World Bank be encouraging? more migration of the dirty industries to the least developed countries. Uh, and, and that, you know, there, there, there's a lot of thinking now that, you know, the global north has essentially outsourced its its pollution to the global south, which you kind of segues into your point about we've, we've hidden the problem, so to speak, uh, of... The manufacture of of our of our shiny new, you know, devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that has occurred in in many ways. Um, that that quote from Larry Summers and a related one often comes up in in the kind of pollution and waste research that I I do. And it, you know, um, I I think while there is truth in it, it's also important to to recognize that um, it is no longer um, just the global north that is um, a uh, that are users of these devices that there's a great deal of what some people talk about as as south south trade um, uh, in terms of designing building consuming these devices and I mean, so I'm not trying to minimize um, what, um, you know, if if we look at a sort of indu- from an industrial evolution sort of point of view, there has been a, a great deal of, um, you know, outsourcing or offshoring of industrial production to um, uh, places outside the global north. And one of the consequences of that is the you know the migration of of uh, pollution uh, to those places, um, but it. We also, I think, today, you know, we we live in a world where um, people uh, around the world are are using and consuming these devices, and um, it's it's just a little bit more complicated than putting the global north at the sort of the center of things and always the the driver as it were yeah true true no the, the, that that's a good point um paint us a bit of a picture of you know a town or a community probably it's going to be in the global south even though as you say there's there's lots of south to south trade as well that is living close to say a mine with a big you know tailings or slag you know, you know, the mine has been there for five years or 10 years or 15 years. You know, what's what's it going to be like there? What's you know, and what are the the danger? You know, what's the overall picture of that community's life and health? When uh, the ore body is exposed to the atmosphere and to precipitation, you can get things like acid mine drainage. Uh, from just plain old rainfall uh, and the chemical reactions that occur as a consequence, and that um, acidified uh, drainage can mobilize other chemicals that are naturally occurring in the ore body, and those can be quite toxic. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, water flows where it will, so that can flow into other systems, agricultural systems, drag- drinking water systems, and so on and so forth. So the effects can. Um, uh, 
flow well beyond the mine site, even even the adjacent community, um, the the negative effects can flow uh, uh, quite far uh, beyond uh, the the community in question. So it can it can be quite hard to sort of paint a you know a generally applicable uh, picture uh, because of these sort of site specific conditions that that can make such a difference. One of the things that does exist in a lot of environments would be these are kind of tailings lakes or or um, how big can they be or what would they be more likely uh, uh, you get a big tailings lake. Describe or, you know, because I've never, well, I've only seen pictures of them in, I don't know if you've seen them up live, but, uh, you know, these there are things that not, we don't really know about that, that you know, they, those these big tailings lakes, they're not going to go away, are they? You know, they're going to stay for thousands of years and they're, you know, they're quite dangerous in, in the environment. And what sort of sizes could we be talking about? Putting the sort of the magnitude in <laughs> in perspective can be, it can be really hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have stood on the edge of um, a, a mine in uh, Arizona, a copper mine in Arizona called the Copper Queen Mine, which is adjacent to um, uh, a, a fairly small, uh, city called Bisbee, Arizona, uh, the Copper Queen mine in the, um, uh, you know, um, late 19th, early 20th century, if I'm remembering my history correctly, it was one of the biggest mine sites at the time. Um, and when you stand on, it's a, it's an open pit mine. When you stand on the lookout that is now right adjacent to the road that, that runs around its rim, I mean, it, it is, an overwhelmingly vast hole in the ground it's sort of you know it is the it's a reverse mountain if if that makes sense it it is um uh it's almost um it's hard to grasp the scale when you look across the rim and you can see buildings uh on the other side um that uh you know the the scale is so vast that it, it's hard to sort of um, determine how, visually how far away you are until you might see someone walking as this you know this tiny dot on the other side of the rim. Wow, it sounds like a meteorite strike. It uh, yeah, it, uh, it's it's similar to that kind of thing. I think I mean one of the interesting things about that specific one is that. Um, when you look at the site from uh, an aerial photo or from a satellite photo, you can see the mine tailings that have been dug out of the ground and placed adjacent to the mine and on which the town itself, Bisbee, Arizona, some parts of it are built on top of it. So the, the town is almost like the negative image of the hole in the ground. Um, yeah. And, you know, for those who you know, not aware, or I suppose there's all sorts of types of ta- tailings is essentially the waste of the mining process. And, and, and in some environments, the last thing you'd want to do is build a town on, 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 on a tailing. On, on... For sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, uh, even in the case of Bisbee, Arizona, you know, here we are um, in uh, what is the, uh, most or second most uh, wealthiest country in the world, the United States, and it, the the town itself is still decades after the mine itself has closed, uh, dealing with the um, local uh, toxic consequences of that uh, mining that that went on for, you know, let's say a, a century or so, a hundred yeah a hundred years or so before it uh, from opening to closing, so. Um, in terms of and in very you know sort of quotidian everyday ways you know people not being able to in their yards being able to um plant uh food gardens because uh of the the toxins in the soil um the the dust in the uh in the town um is also a problem um because of the the toxic chemicals that are just resident in the soil as a consequence of the what gets called the overburden of the mine being 
you know, deposited at the surface. Um, so I, I, the reason I mention this particular example is that the, the image is often, you know, a, uh, an impoverished and, and, you know, racialized community in the global South that is strongly affected by these, um, kinds of industrial sites. And of course that is, uh, that happens absolutely, but we don't have to go to the global South to find them. Um, there, there are legacy, um, sites in the global North and ones that are ongoing. Um, you know, one of the things you said earlier in this conversation about that certain minerals are more particular, uh, to electronics, uh, are there any, uh, minerals, um, of these particular set that are more mining intensive or environmentally damage, damaging uh, that that you could maybe d describe a little that that uh, have a bigger uh, negative impact than say other other sort of minerals minings, but that are essential for our smartphones uh, or or laptops. It's actually hard to tie the degree of, of harm arising from mining to the particular materials involved. It has, I mean, not that there's no difference, but it has more to do with the, um, the mining practices involved, the, the magnitude of them um, and how they're organized. So, um, yeah, it... I think that you can find um, e extreme forms of harm sort of no matter what the material, whether it's something as relatively uh, mundane as, say, tin or aluminum um, being mined or uh, something like uh, cobalt, uh, you know, tungsten, the, the um, more um, infamous rare earth metals. It has, I think it has more to do with the mining practices that are the issues the the kinds of controls or lack thereof on things like um uh tailings ponds um acid mine drainage and and whatnot um and i i so again not trying to diminish uh by any means uh the the um negative environmental consequences that occur from mining um, but I, I think it, it would be, um, it's difficult to say that, say, you know, copper is relatively okay relative to, I don't know, um, tantalum mining. Uh, it really it really matters on how the mining uh, is done, uh, more so than, than the materials, I would say. And is there a how there, like you, you mentioned, Cobalt, that is, that generally speaking, certain materials, because of where... They are located, have poor uh, mining practices, or is is that is it just you know a generalized thing there, or, or are there instances of of more poor mining practices associated with with certain materials because of where they are physically located? Mining, mining, and mining companies go where the ore is. Um... And uh, also where uh, the the ore is located at the to be crass about it at the cheapest possible price, right? Because their ultimate goal is to realize highest profit. That is what they do. Um, and when you get a combination of all you know all of those factors in in a, uh, a jurisdiction where there is either a lack of um, regulation. Uh, on mining practices or um, a lack of enforcement or both, then you're more likely to have, um, uh, you know, a, a higher degree of negative environmental and human consequences. And, um, you know, there, there can be, there's a lot of attention on the so-called informal sector, um, and, or sometimes it gets called artisanal mining, uh, for example, in Congo, um, as it relates to things like tantalum um, and uh, 
which is an important material for for electronics. Um, but uh, you know, I think that that attention needs to be nuanced enough to to take into account the the huge magnitude of uh, what I would just describe as normal industrial mining. Um, which you know far far outweighs uh, in terms of negative consequences what what happens from you know the the informal sector or or the artisanal sector um, especially in terms of you know just the the vastly different power those those two groups if we can call them that have um, I mean people working in the informal sector are um, living in conditions that are are very different than say the CEOs of major mining companies so could you say you know um like i grew up on a farm and if you if you a small farm and you know if you if you do your farming properly or if you you know you uh you change you've potatoes in one field this year and then you don't have them in the same you let the field go fallow or whatever and but over time, you know, if you do it right, you're not really, so to speak, damaging the land or <laughs> you certainly don't give the indication, you know, that you can uh, farm sustainably uh, in, in many ways. But is it is there such a thing as sustainable mining or is it is all mining, all, all mining a kind of does damage? It, it's just a kind of the least damage because when a when a mine leaves an area or when the it's mined out it it's you know it's not most of those areas are going to really struggle to recover aren't they? so well certainly in within human time scales yes um uh yeah is there such a thing as sustainable mining i think i think that is <laughs> i think that is uh um you know the multi multi billion dollar question um i i think the short answer is that um industrial uh scale mining as we know it now is not sustainable um it, it is uh it is not something that um that can go on indefinitely in the form that it that it currently takes um, so what does that mean? It has major implications for how, um, and I have to sort of put it in air quotes here, how we, um, because who is that, uh, that benefits from those, those industrial mining practices, um, how we, uh, order and, and organize our, our lives. I think, you know, this is very broad brushstroke and, and a bit abstract, but I think a key is figuring out how to learn to live with sufficiency. Um, and um, there are a lot of different ways to do that. Um, but I think, it, you know, sort of in slightly more concrete terms, it means figuring out how to learn to live with substantially reduced material and, and energy throughput in the systems that, that, uh, uh, we live in in um, the you know the global north, as it were. Uh, but even even within that, there are really important distinctions to be made between um, you know different groups of of people and how they are oriented in terms of um, economic class and and associated um, you know uh, ideas there. Just listening to you there, the conundrum or contradiction of renewables. And I, I, as you point out there, and as I taught, you know, we don't have an energy production problem. We have an energy consumption problem. As you say, we, we consume far, far too much energy, but we're, we are building. If we look at, you know, e-cars e or electric vehicles, for example, um, you know, from what I've read, they are in their production, they are four to five times more materially intense that so mining dependent than than our uh, traditional vehicle so if if mining is not sustainable and we're building this industry that we call sustainable or green 
on top of an an un, wholly unsustainable foundations. That's a kind of a it's a kind of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> um, no, it, it certainly is. I think you know one of the ways that that specific example that you're talking about there, electric vehicles, does to some degree dovetail with my work because these cars are increasingly, um, you know, I, I think it's relevant to think of them as sort of computers on wheels um, rather than than cars in the, in the more traditional sense. So there there is some overlap with my work here. And that isn't to say that I would, you know, that I would, I think electric vehicles are a bad idea inherently. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that point, but, you know, they also are not going to solve the climate uh, emergency for us. Um, they, you know, um, mining comes with uh, harms that are not just related to carbon. Um, there, you know, there are toxic harms, um, uh, other environmental harms, social harms, etc. So, um, I think you know, thinking about electric vehicles as renewables and and the broader discourse of sort of what to call it green consumerism. Uh, or, or green uh, capitalism, if it is premised on continued growth, then it is inherently unsustainable. Um, and that is a, an internal contradiction that um, those of us who, who care about such things need to, need to sort out. Um, I think there are, there are ways to do that, but it, it means, you know, broad systemic changes now one slightly changing focus one uh, a quote that uh, from one of your articles i found really fascinating i mean all of it uh, i found fascinating but one was where you said you know one of the best places for environmental chemists to look for previously unknown chemical pollutants is not in the environment or nature but in the residues of previously manufactured commodities, particularly discarded electronics. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you just explain that a bit? Because it sounds, it sounds sure. like a, an alien horror movie <laughs> 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 or the plot of a, of a new alien horror movie or something like that uh, in, 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 you know, uh, so maybe you could just expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, it is. It's a counterintuitive kind of uh, description, I, I know. Um, but it but it's it's very concrete, very as we're down to earth. So um, it, it can be somewhat, um, I guess, amazing to learn that um, we have very little understanding of the sort of chemical, the, the galaxy of chemicals that um, all of our, you know, sort of daily products that are surrounding us and even in our homes that we live inside are made of, which, you know, might be surprising to listeners who might think, well, the industries must know the chemicals that are going into their, you know, this or that product that they're making. And, that is true, but only to a very small extent. So um, there, there are quite literally millions of different chemicals available for industrial uses, but um, only, you know, sort of uh, on the order of thousands have ever been tested for their toxicity. So there's a there's there are differences by orders of magnitude between um, uh, knowing um, the toxic consequences of this or that chemical and um, the number of chemicals that exist for industrial uses. So people who are experts in this area, um, you know, people who would self-identify as environmental toxicologists when in in um looking for new toxins of concern 
Um, there, one publication in, in particular that I cite in my work makes this point very explicit that that they have found a previously unknown uh, chemical toxicant not out in the environment, as it were, in sort of, you know, some unexplored cave or something like that, but quite literally in the um, in the dust from electronics recycling facilities in Canada or the household dust in um, uh, in in homes that participated in the study uh, in again in Canada. So um, there, as I say, there are so many chemicals available for industrial use that it completely exceeds all of the testing capacity on earth to keep up with the number of new chemicals being uh, made and made available for, for industrial use. So there is literally no way to fully know um, the extent, if you will, of the chemical galaxy that we find ourselves increasingly living. Mm. And maybe this is an extreme comparison, but I had it in, you know, I was thinking about it in, in, uh, over the last couple of weeks that, that, you know, we, we constantly worry and, and, and rightly so about nuclear power and nuclear waste, but we have, mm-hmm. we seem to have treated e-waste in an extremely, um, you know, lax way, like, I mean, less than, less than 20% of e-waste is uh, is properly recycled, and so the rest of it either mm-hmm. goes to poor countries or whatever, and and you can't throw this stuff away. You know there is no away. They like these forever chemicals and minerals and all, all the stuff. So that we, you know, is e waste. You know, with all and we're dumping fifty fifty million tons and soon to be a hundred million tons of e waste every year. Is it, you know, potentially we are a hidden time bomb that that's full of nasty surprises for for future generations in some sense for sure um i think you know i think um nuclear waste has a as a kind of spectacular um uh you know imaginary that goes with it in part because of the somewhat excuse me spectacular accidents that have gone with it you know fukushima being one of the more recent ones um uh, Three Mile Island, um, you know, these were very um, punctuated events and very mediagenic, uh, which I think at least goes some way to explaining why we think of a nuclear waste as somehow special. But I think you're you're exactly right. Um, it's very important for us to understand that many many of the everyday mundane objects around. Um, or that are part of so many of our lives, everything from, you know, a typical contemporary television to a phone to a computer, what have you, are made of materials that from a geologic uh, point of view are effectively permanent. Um, they they will last long, long uh, beyond uh, anything recognizable as as you know, contemporary society, or perhaps, you know, even even humans as a species. Um, plastics do not break down over um, timelines that are, uh, have any relationship to human lifetimes. Um, same with other uh, materials that out of which our, our devices uh, are, are manufactured. So in many ways, that kind of exotic or special sense that goes with something like nuclear waste is uh, built right into many of the things that you and I, you know, would handle uh, in an everyday way. Even as we speak, you know, the the earphones around my head are made of plastics and metals that will last for, for millennia. Yeah. And as, as you, as you indicate, when they, get dumped or they um somebody uses a blowtorch on them or acids or 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 even just rain there can be chemical reactions or combinations you know with with those relatively 
currently innocuous her iPhones or or, or laptops that um, can can create new combinations of harm uh, as right. well. That that so so finally, you know, summarizing what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> so what can government? What can citizens? Brand yeah. original manufacturers, you know, uh, mitigate. Uh, you know, how can we mitigate, or how can we be better? You know, I heard this great phrase that I think it was from some native person in some uh, society, the, either the Maoris or something in New Zealand, about about uh, the need to be a good ancestor, uh, yeah. and that you know, I think most people would not want to leave a legacy. For their children and grandchildren, and for the you know for, for the earth that is that is that is horrible and toxic and 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 destructive, um, you know how? But we but we still want our phones and we still want our, you know we we don't want a like I grew up in a small farm we didn't even have a tractor and I, that was no fun you know uh, technology can give you you know without technology it's a back breaking hard lot really 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 hard and difficult life. So without us giving up all of these things, is there ways that, you know, uh, I was talking to a scientist there uh, a couple of weeks ago and he was saying, you know, the the first um, Nokia's had about four or five materials, you know, now they've got about 60 materials. I mean, can we still have good phones with less materials? Because if we've got, you know, less materials, they're easier to disassemble and separate or, what how what's the path forward if, yeah. you know, if growth is going to destroy you know if there's no such thing as sustainable mining but we need to do a bit of it you know but what what's the path forward yeah well i think one has i think the important thing is to think of as multiple paths and they may or may not intertwine with one another rather than a single you know magic bullet so maybe let's start with individuals as citizens and consumers, since I think that that's what is relevant to a lot of listeners, right? That's sort of the automatic is like, what can I do? And um, I, I would say a couple of things. One is quite, and it's to be honest, which is as an individual, there's very little <laughs> that you can do. And I know that that can be a bit of a setback or a depressing thing. But if you think about it going into a electronics store and you're going to buy a new phone or laptop or what have you, you have a, a, a pretty large array of choices around models and specifications and price ranges and whatnot. And so it would appear that you have a, you know, a, a wide variety of choice. But when it comes to the underlying materials that all of those different models and makes and brands are made of, or the underlying labor conditions, they are so similar as to make the idea of consumer choice as a, as a, as a path forward to a more sustainable relationship with electronics basically meaningless um, because the as I say the underlying materials are so similar across those makes models brands and the underlying labor conditions are so similar so save yourself some time and uh, don't think that consumer choice is is going to <laughs> be a, a major way to mitigate you you can the the most environmental device you have is the one you already have so you can keep using what you already have as long as possible you can pass it along for reuse to friends families uh, friends family you know uh, other organizations um but beyond those there's there's not much that individual action can do you can learn to repair um what does matter is organized consumer action and that really means organized citizen action and that might sound abstract but so much of the way uh you know at least in in western europe and in in uh canada the us so much of our lives without necessarily really thinking about it are already ordered as a consequence of historical uh organized citizen action to um, you know, have better conditions. For example, um, 
you know, we uh, in in Canada or the U.S., you've got uh, Health Canada, you've got the Food and Drug Administration. These are bodies that regulated um, things like pharmaceuticals, like food, um, that didn't just appear out of, you know, sort of... Um, uh, the altruism of of lawmakers it came out of organized consumer action in the you know late 19th early 20th centuries and now as a consequence of that for the most part you know there are high degrees of safety around food products that we consume and pharmaceuticals that we consume um that uh uh, you know, companies that make those products have to demonstrate in advance of them being put on the market that those products are safe within certain limits. Now that, and as I say, that wasn't, it wasn't always like that and it didn't happen by itself. And also the examples that I just gave there, the FDA and or Health Canada, I mean, there are caveats that come with it. They're certainly not perfect institutions by any means. Um, but but what those examples tell us is that those are multi multi billion dollar industries, food and pharmaceuticals, and we found ways to uh, regulate them in ways that lead to a safer, not safe, but a safer material world. It tells us that if we can do it in those sectors, we can do it in other sectors. Another example is the automobile sector. Um, you know, not uh, all that long ago, uh, things like automobile safety was completely voluntary and controlled by, you know, an industry consortium of, you know, an oligopoly basically, basically of three or four car manufacturers. But organized consumer action at made you know advocated for uh regulation that eventually became things like uh the national transportation and safety um, administration in the united states and as a consequence of regulations that came out of that you know you cannot buy a car without for example working seat belts that wasn't always the case Maybe examples, recent examples of that, you know, are all the millions of young people, the Greta Thunberg movement, and, and of course the right to repair movement, which which was absolutely not driven by government and was not and and, and totally not driven by the brands. In fact, they, they tried to destroy it on multiple occasions. But you know, it wasn't some it wasn't some huge organization. And yet, right to repair resonated, you know, because of citizen action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think speaking in broad brushstrokes, you know, it's important to think of ourselves as as citizens and to uh, to work together uh, as citizens to uh, affect change. And in it's a cliche, but it, in many ways, you know, uh, that is how uh the, the the biggest social shifts historically have happened and they it's that those hist those historical shifts are sort of i think for a lot of us so taken for granted so in the background in the sense of they are part of the infrastructure of daily life for example those relatively safe foods and pharmaceuticals those relatively safe automobiles that they're, they're so mundane they disappear from our sense that the world was ever any other way uh and yet as i say um those those three economic sectors automobiles food uh pharmaceuticals all multi multi-billion dollar sectors all uh historically um and even now somewhat um you know uh controlled by a, 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 a relatively small group of industrial interests. So very powerful, and yet um, they have been forced to, to change in certain ways uh, how they manufacture the things that um, people as consumers uh, bring into their, to their daily lives. Finishing off, say, um, let's say you're in your local community hall uh, in, in in your town and um 
people are saying there's 20 or 30 or 50 citizens and, uh, and they're there and they're saying, Josh, you know, we've read your stuff and we're listening. You know, we really want to do something. We want to get together. We want to get organized. You know, what is what is the seatbelt movement? What what should we organize around? What should we start? Is there a, a seatbelt focus, you know, that, that we could, you know, start writing letters about to our politicians? What would you say is the first thing, you know, that you'd say, well, we want to replace our battery. I don't know. You know, what, what, is, is there a, is, you know, there's, you've got 50 enthusiastic citizens looking at you and saying, we want to, we want to do something. We want to get together and organize. What's our seatbelt movement focus? Is there, and, and maybe there just isn't one thing, but if you had to say to them, well, first focus on or focus on these couple of things. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say focus on a couple of things. I mean, the first thing to do is is to uh, with that group would be to to as clearly as possible def define what it is you want to achieve because you want to make sure that whatever action you're proposing matches up with the uh, relationships that matter to the the problem you want to solve. So, if you want. Um, you know, longer lasting devices, then maybe it's organizing around uh, right to repair, for example. Uh, and even then, though, you need to pay attention to the specifics of where your community is located. So, for example, um, if I was, you know, in this town, this mythical town hall in, in Canada, I would have to grapple with the reality that Canada as a population is about the size of California. No major electronics manufacturer is going to make a Canadian phone that is, you know, only that, that adheres to laws that we might get passed around, say, right to repair that are specific to Canada. So what does that mean? I need to look to the jurisdictions where right to repair is really taking off or is instituted, um, for example, like in the EU, and say agitate with my local uh, local politicians to say, look, you should uh, pass regulations that match or exceed what's going on in this much bigger, much richer uh, jurisdiction for example, the EU, um, so that, uh, you know, our devices are, are at least as long lasting. If that's one example, another example, if, if your goal is a safer, like a chemically safer um, world uh, around electronics, then again, I'm, I might uh, look to what the European Union is doing with its REACH legislation. I forget what that acronym uh, stands for just off the top of my head, but basically it, it regulates uh, how chemicals are used and what chemicals can be used at all through in any manufacturing of products that enter into the EU market. That The reason that's so important is that it it's upstream, right? It's it's in the manufacturing sector, which is where the the um, design product design decisions are made that have the biggest consequences for what you personally, as a citizen or a consumer, will later, um, you know, go and purchase and and use in your life. If they were to say, well, Josh, what's your dream? I mean, if you, you, you have us, you know, what would it be? The chemical focus would it be? What would you, you know, if it was, if if you know, it was down to you uh, to to drive this community. What would you be writing your? I know you're doing this in your in your career, but if you had to, pick, if you had to pick some, would it be those less chemicals in electronics, less, less material? a certain type of forever chemicals to try and reduce them or remove them or you know we've got these 50 people and they're saying we want to follow you <laughs> what's that one thing that you lead us towards what yeah for sure i think for me i would my focus would be on uh the the chemical problems and so this would be about you know sort of designing a campaign around um uh, let's call it material sim simplicity for manufacturing. Um, perhaps putting, you know, like the REACH legislation does in the EU, you know, 
hard caps on certain kinds of chemicals being used uh, at all. Um, so there are, to the extent that I understand it, there are provisions within that legislation that, except in circumstances where there is no viable substitute for a given chemical, there are certain uh, toxicants that are are regulated out of use altogether. Um, I think that that is uh, where I would uh, focus my attention. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.